0: Welcome to the January 25th, 2024 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. First on today's podcast, the association between occupational exposure to anti-cancer agents in a parent and subsequent cancer in a child. Researchers in Japan report an eightfold increased risk of leukemia in one to three-year-old children of mothers exposed during pregnancy. Up next, deciphering and disrupting the activation of piezo-1 in hereditary xerocytosis. New investigations reveal a connection between the mechanically activated cation channel piezo-1 and TMEM16F, a calcium-dependent phospholipid scramblase in red blood cells, providing insights into the potential treatment of this disorder. Finally, assessment of measurable residual disease, or MRD, in patients with NPM1-mutated AML, or acute myeloid leukemia, receiving venetoclax-based non-intensive therapy. MRD provides valuable prognostic information in this setting, paving the way for future studies and incorporation into clinical decision-making. Our first research article is Pediatric Leukemia and Maternal Occupation Exposure to Anti-Cancer Drugs, the Japan Environment and Children's Study Shonsuki Yamamoto of Kyushu University in Fukuoka, Japan is the first author. Occupational exposure of a parent to medical agents or ionizing radiation has been suggested as a possible risk factor for childhood cancer. However, the relationship between such exposure and subsequent pediatric malignancies has not yet been comprehensively studied. Prior studies have shown largely inconclusive results, possibly due to incomplete patient data and study design limitations. The present research article by Yamamoto and colleagues has shifted the discussion. Their report provides new findings from the Japan Environment and Children's Study a large nationwide multi-center prospective birth cohort study. The aim was to determine the risk of pediatric leukemias or brain tumors over the first three years of life after occupational exposure of either parent to certain toxic materials, including chemotherapy drugs, ionizing radiation, or anesthetics. Researchers looked at offspring of parents who had been exposed to anti-cancer agents, ionizing radiation, or anesthetics, often as healthcare workers. In questionnaires, parents had reported whether they were exposed to these agents for more than half a day, at least once a month. For mothers, the exposure period of interest was during pregnancy. For fathers, the three months prior to conception. The key finding is a nearly eightfold increase in risk of leukemia among children whose mothers had occupational exposure to anti-cancer agents during pregnancy. By contrast, paternal exposure to medical agents was not linked to increased pediatric cancer risk, and there were no associations between medical agent exposure in parents and brain tumor incidence in offspring. The analysis included a total of 93,207 children. Overall, 1.4% of mothers handled anti-cancer drugs, 2.3% worked with ionizing radiation, and 1.1% handled anesthetics at work during pregnancy. In the first three years of life, 29 of those children developed leukemia and 7 developed brain tumors. None of the parents of these 36 children had received anti-cancer drugs or ionizing radiation for their own medical treatment. Four of the leukemias developed in children whose mothers were exposed to anti-cancer agents. That translated into an incidence rate of 309.8 per 100,000 population. By contrast, the incidence rate was just 27.2 per 100,000 population in children with leukemia but no maternal exposure to anti-cancer agents. There were also higher leukemia incidence rates among children of mothers exposed to ionizing radiation or anesthetics, but in a Poisson regression model, only maternal exposure to anti-cancer drugs remained as a risk factor for pediatric leukemia, with an adjusted relative risk of 7.99 and a 95% confidence interval. Interestingly, no cases of acute lymphoblastic leukemia associated with maternal chemotherapy exposure were detected before the age of one year. In a commentary, Jeremy M. Schraw of Baylor College of Medicine says the present study is noteworthy in three respects. It's the first to demonstrate an association between exposure to anti-cancer agents in pregnant individuals and leukemia in their offspring. Also noteworthy is the strength of the association in terms of relative risk. Finally, the data was collected prospectively in a very large birth cohort. This reduces the recall bias that may introduce error in case control studies. Schwa says the findings contrast with results from a previous publication by these authors. That investigation found a link between infantile onset neuroblastoma and maternal radiation exposure. By contrast, they found no link between any brain tumor or infantile onset leukemia or brain tumors and exposure to medical agents. In their present research article, Yamamoto and co-authors explained that their previous study focused only on infants under 12 months of age, and thus it does not represent the majority of pediatric patients with brain tumors or leukemia. Another unanswered question is whether maternal exposure to anti-cancer agents also translates into increased risk of cancers later in childhood or in adolescence. The present study only focuses on the first three years of life. Also, what's the critical exposure window that should be avoided? If the study's findings are validated, this information will be needed for risk mitigation. Altogether, Schraw concludes, the current study pinpoints a novel environmental mechanism that may influence childhood cancer risk. And it should stimulate further research into these important unanswered questions. Our next research article is Deciphering and Disrupting Piezo 1 TMEM16F Interplay in Hereditary Zerocytosis, and the first author is Pengfei Liang of Duke University School of Medicine in Durham, North Carolina. Hereditary Zerocytosis, or HX, is a rare congenital hemolytic anemia characterized by erythrocyte dehydration with varying degrees of hemolytic anemia and often a clotting disorder. HX, also known as dehydrated hereditary stomatocytosis, is associated with gain-of-function mutations in the gene PIEZO1, which encodes a mechanosensitive ion channel. It has previously been unclear, however, how the mutations in PIEZO1 lead to the abnormalities observed in patients with HX. In this study, the authors found that red cells from HX patients have elevated levels of phosphatidylserine or PS, on the surface of their red cells. PS is an anionic phospholipid usually located on the inner leaflet of the plasma membrane. However, in response to elevated intracellular levels of calcium, PS is moved to the cell surface where it triggers a wide variety of cellular responses. For example, PS on the surface of red blood cells is a marker of senescence, serving as a so-called eat-me signal that facilitates phagocytic clearance. Surface PS is also a procoagulation signal enabling assembly of coagulation complexes. And it's a FUSE-ME signal that facilitates cell-to-cell and virus-to-cell fusion. The transport of PS from the inner cell membrane to the outer membrane involves an enzyme called a calcium-activated phospholipid scramblase. Yet the identity of the red blood cell scramblase that mediates transfer of PS to the surface has eluded investigators for decades. However, there is increasing evidence that members of the TMEM16 transmembrane family, and in particular, TMEM16F, play an important role. Loss-of-function mutations in TMEM16F are linked to bleeding disorders, and TMEM16F deficiency reduces PS exposure in platelets and red blood cells. The current research article by Liang and co-authors builds on these findings by showing that the piezo-1 mechanosensitive ion channel protein is coupled to the TMEM16F scramblase to regulate transfer of PS to the surface of the red cell. They show that TMEM16F scramblase is activated in normal red cells by uptake of calcium through the mechanosensitive piezo-1 channels, leading to PS exposure on the surface. In red blood cells from patients with hereditary xerocytosis, piezo-1 gain-of-function mutations amplified PS surface exposure through functional coupling to the TMEM16F scramblase. According to investigators, this increase in PS exposure may contribute to complications of hereditary xerocytosis that include hemolytic anemia, splenomegaly, and thrombosis. These findings have potential treatment implications. Liang and colleagues found that they could inhibit the Piezo1 channel with a common gout medication, benzbromarone, and with a spider toxin known as GSMTX4. In these experiments, blocking the Piezo1 channel prevented red blood cell echinocytosis, hemolysis, and excessive exposure of PS on the surface of the red cells. In a commentary on these findings, Hélène Guizorn of Côte d'Azur University in Nice, France, said the comprehensive research approach in the present study convincingly establishes TMEM16F as the major calcium ion-dependent phospholipid scramblase in red blood cells. Furthermore, Guizorn says the researchers have revealed a previously unrecognized connection between TMEM16F and the Piezo1 mechanically activated cation channel. They demonstrate not only the role of TMEM16F in exposing PS on the cell. Surface of red blood cells, but also provide a crucial link between this exposure and the activation of piezo 1. In the content of hereditary xerocytosis, Guizo says, the investigations provide new avenues for therapeutic interventions. Based on these experimental results, benzbromarone is an available drug that could be promising to prevent hemolysis due to hyperactivity of Piezo-1 in hereditary xerocytosis. Although this drug was widely withdrawn in 2003 due to reports of hepatotoxicity, it is still on the market in Japan, Taiwan, Brazil, and some European countries. According to Guizorn, repurposing of benzbromarone as a piezo1 blocking drug could be worth exploring. Altogether, Guizorn concludes, the intricate interplay between piezo1, TMEM16F, and cell membrane lipids in the present study suggests new opportunities to better characterize red blood cell physiology and to treat clinical conditions such as hereditary xerocytosis. The final article on today's podcast is Molecular MRD is strongly prognostic in patients with NPM1 mutated AML, or acute myeloid leukemia, receiving venetoclax-based non-intensive therapy. And the first author is Jad Othman of King's College London in the United Kingdom. Mutations in nucleophosmin or NPM1, are common in adult patients with AML. NPM1 mutations generally confer a favorable prognosis in younger patients receiving intensive chemotherapy. In older or unfit patients with NPM1 mutations, venetoclax-containing combinations have proven particularly effective when one looks at complete remission, or CR. In randomized phase 3 studies, Adding venetoclax to azacitidine or low-dose citerabine significantly improved the composite rate of CR or CR with incomplete hematologic recovery among the NPM1 mutation patient subgroups. In parallel, the accurate assessment of MRD is becoming an important prognostic tool in AML. In patients with NPM1-mutated AML treated with intensive chemotherapy, the assessment of molecular MRD by mutation-specific RT-qPCR strongly predicts outcomes. However, the role of MRD assessment in older or unfit patients receiving non-intensive therapy is not as clear. Studies have shown that MRD assessed by flow cytometry is prognostic for survival in patients with AML treated with venetoclax-based combinations. However, this method of MRD assessment had less power in the small subset of patients with NPM1 mutations. Accordingly, Othman and co-authors sought to study the prognostic value of RT-QPCR-MRD in patients with NPM1 mutations treated with venetoclax combination therapy. The retrospective study, published in the current edition of Blood, is based on an international, real-world cohort of 76 patients with previously untreated NPM1-mutated AML. The patients had been treated in the United Kingdom or Australia. All had received CR or CR with incomplete hematologic recovery, following first-line treatment with venetoclax and hypomethylating agents or low-dose citerabine. All had at least one bone marrow assessment of MRD assessment in the first four cycles of treatment. Assessment of MRD by RT-QPCR had been performed at reference laboratories using validated assays, requested at the discretion of the treating clinician. Now for the results. Out of 76 patients, 44 patients, or 58 percent, achieved bone marrow MRD negativity, while another 14 patients, or 18 percent, had a reduction of greater than or equal to 4 logs base 10 from baseline as their best response. There was no significant difference in MRD outcomes between patients treated with venetoclax plus a hypomethylating agent and those treated with venetoclax plus low dose cytarabine. By the end of cycle two, the cumulative rate of bone marrow MRD negativity was 25%, going up to 47% by the end of cycle four, and 50% by the end of cycle six. The key result from this study is that achieving a specific MRD milestone is associated with very favorable outcomes, specifically MRD negativity within the first four cycles of treatment. In patients meeting this criterion, The two-year overall survival rate was 84%, compared to just 46% for patients who were MRD-positive at that time point. In multivariable analyses, MRD-negativity at the end of cycle 4 was the strongest prognostic factor associated with survival, with a hazard ratio of 0.21, a 95% confidence interval of 0.08 to 0.55, and a p-value of 0.002. A total of 22 patients in bone marrow MRD negative remission electively stopped therapy. They stopped after a median of 8 cycles, with a median follow-up of 15 months from the time of stoppage. There were only 2 relapses, and the 2-year treatment-free remission rate was 88%. Interestingly, patients with coexisting mutations in IDH1 or 2 tended to do well, while patients with mutations in FLT3 tended to do much more poorly. Similarly, patients with secondary AML tended to do less well than those with primary disease. A commentary on these findings comes from Kiran D. Sahasrabadi and Alice S. Mims of the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center in Columbus. The commentary authors say this study retrospectively demonstrates the utility of MRD monitoring, provides valuable insights into the kinetics of MRD, and reveals the prognostic significance of an MRD-negative result in patients with NPM1-mutated AML treated with first-line venetoclax-based regimens. However, they add, it also raises several important questions that should be investigated further. For example, can a subset of NPM1 mutated AML patients be cured with venetoclax-based regimens? The finding that a subset of patients who achieved MRD negativity could stop therapy without relapse suggests this might be the case. Also, when should treatment be stopped, or should it be de-escalated? How should patients be monitored after stopping treatment? And if patients do not achieve MRD negativity, does that signal a need to change the therapeutic strategy? Further research is also needed to determine the optimal MRD threshold for clinically actionable decisions in NPM1-mutated venetoclax-treated AML. In the present retrospective analysis, Patients that did not achieve MRD negativity, but did achieve at least a 4 log 10 reduction in MRD, had survival outcomes better than those who did not achieve the 4 log 10 reduction threshold. Altogether, commentary authors say, this study represents a step forward in efforts to understand the significance of MRD in venetoclax-treated patients and incorporate MRD assessment into clinical decision-making. Now, they conclude... It's time for studies that better define the who, what, when, where, and how of MRD status in this setting. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.